As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Perfectly perfect, Mark. I'm glad to hear that. That's probably even better than Mary Poppins. I am here. I'm pleased to announce that my merch has arrived. I am currently wearing uh, swag-branded merch by virtue of the fact that I've declared that anything that is in contact with certain of my body parts necessarily becomes swag merch. I'm not going to be too specific about where that is, though, because it's a family show. But it's in my pants. And hopefully there it will stay. I've gone through and I have reduced some of the prices for some of the great merchandising items. So if you haven't taken a look at our merch, I would encourage you to do so or not. No pressure. Just I needed a new bag for my Tigers and Euphrates tiles. And now I have a new bag for my Tigers and Euphrates tiles. And it says so very wrong about games on it. So there you go. Sweet. Well, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we are going to review our feature game, which is both timely and timeless. Namely, Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg. With that in mind, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I got to play a new Kickstarter game that just was fulfilled called Dead Reckoning. This is a John D. Clare with art by Eno Tool, published by AEG Games. And this is yet another it's a typical card crafting game by John D. Clare. You start off with two cards in every sleeve right off the start. And looking at this game at a glance, you'd swear it was Seafall. <laughs> oh no and he must have he probably used it as a prototype and said hey I, i'm sure i can make this game fun well he did in a way so it's much like any other deck builder like mystic veil vale. you're upgrading your cards your your deck never gets any bigger but you're doing there's a bunch of stuff added to it there's an area control game going on there's combat going on you're sleeving cards as per usual your cards can go up to five things thick by the time you're done. So these, the, you have chunky decks by the <laughs> end. It has this, each because each card has four abilities. You have all these different types of pirates you're going to have in your deck. And so let's just say the captain, as for example, they go up four levels. So you have the captain card, it has the banner at the top, so it's going to cover up the level two that's at the top, because when you go to level two, you pull that card out, you turn it, and now the stats are on the bottom, you flip it over, three and four are on the other side. And also comes with like three upgrades that you're going to get. So the extra things you can do on your turn, you're going to travel around, which is also interesting because you have to set sail first. You're counting up your, your sail icons, and that's how far you can move. And you have to set that only once during your turn because it has this very interesting cargo slash coin trade-off because the coins are victory points but you have to transport them back to your harbor and cargo also takes up that space but if there's any coins or cargo in those spaces you don't get to count the sails so you're trying to get them on your cards because if you cover up the ones on your ship then you don't get to use them also has this huge influence thing that's going on 
which is weird for pirates, but it's what you're doing. <laughs> so you're to you're moving around the map. You're putting influence cubes on these islands, and you want to do this because that allows you to start putting buildings on them. So it makes them harder to take over by other people, and so on and so forth. And that has an interesting mechanism as well, too, because every time it changes hands, you put a permanent cube on it. So you and that can never be removed because there's so many spaces. Say there's three of your cubes and two of mine because there's only five spaces on the particular island. Then when I come, I push your cubes out. It changes hands, and then I get a permanent cube, and it always counts towards the total. Kind of neat. And then you're also upgrading your ship, which lets you have more cargo space, hold more coins, hold more cargo, go faster, stuff like that. And then you're gaining these resources, like I said, the coins and the cargo. And all the cards do different ways. Like you can either put the cargo on an island or on your ship or back at your harbor. It's mostly all back at your harbor, except for the coins. And then you're producing. And you produce only on islands. So... You can do it on islands you control or islands you don't control because there's this whole other mechanism as well where you can offload excess stuff onto islands, but you can only put it back on your ship if you control that island. So you can either dump it into the sea or put it on the island, hope you can uh, get it on a future turn. There also, there's also a mechanism there with the traveling bit where if you o own the island because it was nice enough to let you move this stuff back and forth, you know, it doesn't take an action. You can just do it whenever you want. So you offload all of your stuff count your sails, then bring it all back on again. You know what I mean? So at least there's that kind of thing that you can do that in the harbor and you can do that on islands you control. So it doesn't make the movement so limiting. So all of these things added up to a game that was a little bit longer than it should be for a deck builder. And the theme is like right out there. Like why are pirates trying to get control over, you know, this area control over islands doesn't make much sense. And then you have all this whole hand of pirate cards and you sort of wanted to have invested interest, but no one cares about pirates except for the captain, right? And maybe the first mate who's going to turn on the captain halfway through the show anyway. But anyway. <laughs> Spoilers, geez. All in all, it, it was a great experience. I want to try it again because, you know, there's that sort of learning curve on your first game, knowing that you need to get the sails out, stuff like that. Interesting things going on. And that is Dead Reckoning. Would I like it, Walker? I don't think so, Mark, because the cards aren't that exciting. Like, mm. at least in Mystic Veil, there was, like, a lot of the cards had very unique and, I don't want to say, like, long-winded, but long-winded things they did. This was just straight-up symbols. Sail symbol, cannon symbol. I didn't really talk about the combat. The combat is actually kind of cool. It has like a dropping tower. You drop into the top of this ship and the cubes fly out onto this grid. And it's a straight up, you just count how many, who, there's these crown symbols and whoever has the most crown symbols wins. That's the winner of the battle. Now set that aside. There's all these damages and ways to get more uh, cargo and all sorts of other, other things that are happening. But So that's really neat. And it really doesn't slow down the game too much. That part's interesting because there's different ways to get cannons. It does have an interesting mechanism where you're building up a single card because it has those abilities where it's like a action modifier. These types of symbols on this card will give you more of this other thing. So there's a little bit of cool symmetry there, but it makes it harder to get cards, right? Because instead of just buying it off a grid, the cards are on all the islands. So you physically have to move to the wow. islands where you want the cards, right? So the layout is very much like Mystic Veil, except you're moving around your pirate ship. You might not get to the cards that you want. I I got this really interesting ability where it said, I can buy any card I want. I just have to pay double the price for it, even if my ship's not there. But I only saw one of those cards. Anyway, Dead Reckoning. Uses that system very well of the card crafting, puts a pirate theme on it. I want to try it again, and hopefully it won't be too long with more players. We only played a two-player. Seemed to go fairly quick, even for our first game. That element of movement actually reminded me of Cosmic Frog. I got to play Cosmic Frog again over the weekend, our game of the year of 2020. Absolutely wonderful experience, even with an inopportune player count, namely three. It's better with more players. We had a lovely and lively discussion about whether the cosmic frogs are alive, whether they're created or whether they're bred. I was able to ask all of these sundry cosmological and theological questions to the designer, Jim Felly, and he was very, very generous with his time. And many of the answers were, gee, I don't know, with a strong subtext of why would anyone care? What were you talking about while playing my game? 
We also had a rather involved discussion of speciation of cosmic frogs. Uh, that one in particular seemed to confound Jim Felly. And here's just a pro-life tip. If you're in a position where you're confounding Jim Felly, you've definitely gone off the deep end. I'm, I'm saying, what, what, would, what does he expect when he creates a game, you know, with giant frogs that swallow suns and and regurgitate planet debris? Like, what does, does he not think that it's going to lead to some <laughs> deep psychological questions? Oh, we didn't even get into the psychology. The psychology actually was very straightforward. He explained that the cosmic frogs are sentient, but not sapient. They are precisely intelligent enough to score a game of cosmic frog and no more intelligent than that. So that at least was subject to a definitive answer. At any rate, also got to play another game of Scout, continuing to love Scout. Again, still haven't played more uh, more with three players, and I get the strong impression that it, the dynamics would shift considerably with four, five, or six. But Scout is a brilliant little climbing game coming out of Japan. But I also got to try a game by Leo Colavini. Leo Colavini is a, a man famous for designing Secret Allegiance stock games. Got to play Familia Bande, which is German for family ties. And this is a Leo Colony game with Secret Allegiance stock mechanics. Who'd have thought, right? Shocker, twist ending, everyone gasps in surprise. This is a game where you're actually making a family tree. And the goal is to have the family tree be characterized by the trait that you most want the family tree to be recognized by. And this could be big noses. This could be bad eyesight. This could be large ears. And so you're literally trying to see this family tree with people with those genetic characteristics. Now, initially I was concerned that, and, and I'm being sincere here, I was a little concerned that this game might be a little bit heteronormative. But no, this is just about making a family tree. These could be marriages. These could be surrogacy arrangements. It doesn't matter. This is just the circumstances under which you get certain genetic groupings. No relationship needs to be implied. And I have to say, I, I loved the artwork. The artwork made such storytelling possible because you have this person who might be have two nose symbols and the hair symbol. And so you see this person with lovely hair and a giant schnoz. And you get to pair them up with somebody. And you might be saying, well, you know, they're getting married. I suspect they're going to have a very, very rocky relationship. And you get to see the children they have who will also probably have very prominent noses and or some lovely locks. Or you can just say that they're just a passing acquaintance and what have you. Anyway, this is absolutely a game where the stories, I think, vastly eclipse the interest of the actual gameplay. Because, ultimately, like many Leo Colavini games, games like Clans, for example, that's one of the ones for which he's best known, the whole skullduggery or secrecy isn't really worth your time. I mean, yeah, you could spend some of your limited turns to score points for a faction that is not your own. That's probably asking for trouble. Why don't you just spend all your effort to maximize your own board position and not hope that everyone else at the table is going to be deceived because guess what? They're going to figure it out sooner or later anyway. And sure enough, that's what happened here in Familian Bande. But I didn't mind actually because I was just taken away with the art and the little storytelling. It reminded me a little bit of the Kingston variant for Bloodbound, where at the end of the game, you take all the character cards with the terrible art and you pair them up into relationships. And you get to talk about the awful or great relationships they might have. Familian Bande was definitely like that, but with that being the explicit goal of the game to a large extent. But if you've played one Leo Colavini game where you have secret stock elements, you've probably more or less played them all. I like some of Colavini's designs. I mean, Carolus Magnus is a wonderful game, as is The Bridges of Shangri-La. Those, of course, are two from Leo Colavini's oeuvre that don't have hidden stock elements. So maybe take that for what it's worth. I enjoyed Familian Bande, but I think, again, it was largely on the strength of its charm and on the lovely artwork and just being able to play out this group of oddballs because every card in the deck is a new, unique person characterized by, quite frankly, in many instances, their genetic deficiencies. And so you get these lovely pairings going together. So I, I enjoyed the experience. I might try it again, but quite frankly, I was mostly delighted with the card art and going through the card art again might not lead to more enjoyment. So that was Familian Bande. This is by Leo Colavini. This is a game he put out in 2004, which is to say, according to Walker, before recorded memory. Mark, I got to get play Barrage. I've got a great copy of Barrage here in my home. This is by Tassamo Ballista and Simone Luciani. It's put out by Cranio Creations. Uh, Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani. That's what I said. Yeah, sure. So in Barrage, you have all this water flowing down. You're putting up dams to try to block it so you can utilize it. Bring it through your capacitors. That's it. And then you have to put it into your power stations. And you have to control the dam 
in order for you to use the water. And you also can use it out of neutral dams. And it has to go to one of your power stations. But you can use anyone's capacitors. And we played with all the expansions. And like we said last week, when a Euro game like this usually gets an expansion, it makes it what it is a very tight game and opens it up. So more places to put your workers, easier to use the water, easier to get more water onto the board, and very interesting trade-offs in this expansion. It has spaces where you can like lose your resources permanently, which is crazy to even think about because it has a very interesting mechanism where when you pay resources, you put them on the wheel and then you turn it and then you have spaces that you can go to that turn the wheel a little bit further because you're not going to get those resources back until they come out the other side. Great system. I love everything about Barrage. I enjoy it every time I play and I can't wait to play more. Interestingly enough, my understanding is that when Barrage was designed, it was designed with the expansion in namely the League Water Project, and it was hived off as an expansion largely for commercial reasons and or some peripheral concerns that people would find it too complicated. I actually prefer it without the expansion precisely because it leads to a slightly more tight, more confrontational experience, but of course more on that later, and your mileage may vary. And have you played with the three-dimensional map yet, Mark? I'm very intrigued by this thing. I've never even seen it. I have played with the three-dimensional map. The Kickstarter fulfillment for Barrage was a, a, a bit of a goat rodeo. And uh, some of the components work, some of them work less well. Storage is a bit of a nightmare. Suffice to say, it doesn't add much to the game. Just on a side note about components, I got a copy of uh, The Merchants of the Dark Road, and it has a rondelle in it. But the rondelle has a magnet in the center, and the board has a magnet as well. So the the rondelle just sort of, you know, slides right onto the board, and it spins, and so there's no, you know, center gear or anything like that. Very interesting and, and promising for future, you know, projects. Not enough games make use of magnets. Agreed. I got to try a game called Cursed Court. This was put up by Andrew Hansen a few years ago, published by Atlas Games. And it has the characteristic late 2010s Atlas Games aesthetic of this looks like pseudo CGI, halfway between CGI and someone's relative in cosplay. At any rate, Cursed Court is kind of sort of also a bluffing game whereby you have some secret information, there's some public information, and you have to make bets about what combination of factors are going to enter the game. And it's got a little bit of almost poker elements as well, where information slowly enters the system, more and more cards become public. I played with three, I would not play again with three, and I wouldn't recommend that anyone else play with three, and by virtue of having played with three, I don't think I can really comment on the merits of the game, because with three players, there's only one bit of secret information at the table, because you get a secret card between every two players. So you have a card on your right, a card on your left, and with three, one card of the opposite end of the table, and the rest is going to be public. So a whole bunch more cards enter the public sphere. There's not really much room for making inference about what the rest of the table knows. As a consequence, what is salient and what is very consequential is what the public information is, which means that as the public information enters, whoever can first act on it gets the benefit. So turn order becomes overwhelmingly consequential and it becomes almost trivial. As the card comes up that confirms you're going to get the three in a row, you bid heavily on that three in a row because you know it's going to pay off. Furthermore, there's not really much realm for gambling that I would really appreciate. See, in a game like poker, you can make substantial big moves early on in the game. And if those bets happen to be right, you will benefit from them. In a game of Cursed Court, you can make a bet based on uncertain information. But you have one of two choices. You either make a bet that's small, in which case you're easily going to be dislodged later on in the round when more information is present and somebody else can show up and muscle you out, or you make a huge bet, in which case you've wasted too many of your resources on an uncertain thing. There's no benefit for going early, in other words. There's no benefit for locking something in early. Compare that to another betting game, say Colossal Arena. In Colossal Arena, when you make an uncertain bet early on in the game, it will pay off more, and it will also mean that you getting it on the ground floor, although more uncertain, will be more remunerative. There's no element like that in Cursed Court at all. And so there's this promise of trying to make fake bets so as to fool other people into believing that you have information you don't, or to deceive them into believing that there's information in the system that doesn't exist. 
uh, again, I, I didn't see in a three-player game the merits of doing this. It wasn't worth the time. It wasn't worth your limited betting ability to try to fool somebody else into making a bad bet because the trade-off there just seems absurd, right? I make a bad bet, and then maybe I will convince someone else to make an equally bad bet. How does that benefit me? How am I ahead? <laughs> I don't see why that's such an interesting and cool dynamic. I mean, yeah, if you want to see when the, the bids are released and you say, ha ha, I fooled you all. We have all lost as a consequence. I mean, maybe that's funny, but as a game element, I don't think it's particularly solid. So uh, half of the design I have misgivings about based on how it's baked into the core elements, half of the design I think just isn't meant to be played with three. But with more secret information where I have to make more inferences about what other people know, I would probably enjoy the game better, but quite frankly, I'm not going to be particularly enthusiastic to force such a circumstance in the future. And that was my experience with Cursed Court. So Mark, I got to play a game called either Uptown or Blockers. And it's this giant grid with numbers down the side, letters on the top and bottom, and it's also cordoned off into nine different quadrants, you know, three by three, large grid as well. And you're drawing these tiles, six tiles at a time, and the tiles you're going to have in your pool, you're going to have numbers one through nine, letters A through J or whatever it is, up to nine, nine letters. And you're also going to have a pitcher tiles for one pitcher tile for each of the nine quadrants. And then simply on your turn, you take one of your tiles and you have to put it in the appropriate column or proper area. And you're trying to get as few uh, clusters of these tiles as possible. So you're trying to join them together. You're trying to block people off from, from joining their groups together, all while keeping yours together. You can place tiles over top of other people's tiles, but then you're going to take that into your bank. And if there's a tie, which often there will be because either everyone's going to either have, you know, two or three groups and it's whoever has the fewest enemy tiles will be the winner. I thought it was a great little game. It's great for board game arena because you can quickly assess the board situation, you know, after, you know, a few days coming back to it. Unlike these other games, it's like, okay, this is, you know, uh, Ultimate Railroads Game 7, <laughs> this one, I'm trying to, you know, I just can't play, you know, several games of the same thing on Board Game Arena anymore. It's too painful. But anyway, Uptown, very easy, like I say, because you can assess the situation. Play your turn. I'm interested to see what it plays like in real life. I'm sure you can get a game done in about 10 minutes. There's a little bit of decision space because you know you only have one of each tile, so you can sort of plan ahead on hoping that you're going to get a tile come up soon and, and do stuff like that. This is put out by Amigo and designed by Corey Heath. Well, if you try it in real life, you'll be living in that uptown world. I get to try a game I've been meaning to try for some time called Dicka Diamondin, which is Big Demons. This is an area majority game put out in a very, very small edition by Edition Erkönig by Heinrich Glümpler. This is an area majority game where the board is set up at the beginning of the game by putting out different looped strings of different colors. And so they intersect and overlap in a variety of ways, and that creates the play area. And the, you put pieces at the intersection of two strings, but you can only put a piece of the appropriate color. So at the point where the yellow and the green string overlap, you can only put a yellow or a green piece. Furthermore, you will score based on one of these five colors at the end of the game, but you only commit to one of them during the game. Now, of course, if this were a Leo Colavini game, you would have a secret allegiance at the very beginning of the game, and then you'd have to pretend as though you don't care which one wins. This I find vastly preferable because there's this lovely little element of brinksmanship. Do you advance yellow's position before you're deep in yellow? When do you pull the trigger and commit to a given color, knowing that you're then vulnerable? And furthermore, in, in Dicadominan, the moment you commit to a color, you no longer have a hand of uh, pieces to place. You pull a random piece from the bag and have to place that way. There's some other intricacies involving ghosts and a variety of other stuff. It was thoroughly delightful. I really, really enjoyed it. It's hard to do area majority well with two players. There are absolutely games that do it, but Dicadaminen does a splendid job of it. And the brinksmanship and the element of pushing your luck and knowing when to pull the trigger was fascinating. In the particular game I played, I committed very, very early on because I'm a conservative person and inclined towards commitment. 
And my opponent then had the luxury of not committing at all. I was playing against Mr. Beard, so Mr. Beard didn't have to commit until very nearly the end of the game. Now, it became clear not too long into the game where what he was going for, but he didn't have the pressure to commit because I'd already done it early. The end, the end game score ended up very, very close, and I think demonstrating the validity of both possible positions. And it makes it the kind of game that I would like to revisit. Now, it's sadly difficult to find. In point of fact, Mr. Beard's copy was a proxied copy that he, he put together through his own sweat and tears. And I will be definitely be trying to find a local copy so as to be able to expose more people to Dikadaminen. Very good name. So, Mark, in lieu of the fact that we're doing Agricola, I wanted to play another Uwe Rosenberg game with that had his common traits of breeding animals and tetrameter pieces. No, not Feast for Odin. This is, in fact, New York Zoo. It's a very much lighter uh, game than what he usually, his usual elk. You're simply moving around this treadmill and either you're grabbing a couple of animals or you're putting down tetrameter pieces on your board and it's whoever fills their board the quickest is the winner. And as you can sort of see in that kind of mechanism, everyone's going to get to the same point at the same time, which did happen in our game. Three of us were finishing in the last turn. So I didn't like that part of it. The The hook is that uh, as the piece goes by certain areas, it triggers the breeding of a particular animal. And when the, and they breed inside of the enclosures, which are the tetrameter pieces. And when they fill, then you get to take, uh, your bonus attraction piece and add it to your map. So the better breeding you do, the more of the attraction pieces you get to add to your map, the quicker you fill your map. That sounds gross, Walker. That's how zoos work, Mark. Is it? You sell the offspring of animals to make money so you can buy more attractions so you can make money. Okay. But just when you, you link, the opening of new attractions to, to the animals bre- breeding in the pens it just makes it sound like all these school children are standing around watching the meerkats go at it. Is that how zoos work? It, well, usually they put it out on, on DVD, but yes, you okay. can do it, th- it uh, as attractions as well. Okay. That, and it, Other than that, it, it was very interesting. And I liked how there was all sorts of different ways you could, you could go into it. You could, uh, have multiple, you know, flamingo pens. So, you know, the, every time the flamingo came around, both pens would breed, you know, sort of breaking up your animals, not getting as many attractions off the beginning, but then, you know, in one big fell swoop, a bunch of them all filling at the same time. Lots of different ways to play it. I don't think, you know, I, I'll, I'll play it a lot. If it's put in front of me, I won't complain, but I don't think I'll ever choose to play New York Zoo. Would you rather play New York Zoo or Baron Park? Uh, I would rather play Baron Park, even with the setup load. Hmm. Yeah, that's my impression. There, there's, there's just a slew of quality Tetromino games. And generally speaking, most of them are perfectly pleasant. But at the end of the day, how, mon- how many different ones do you need, especially when a lot of them are just very simple and relying on the pleasure of filling up squares with Tetrominoes? Like Cosmic Colonies, the game we played a couple of years ago, very much of the, of the same nature. Cosmic Colonies was fine. It's just there's three or four other very high-quality Tetromino games that I'd, I'd rather play. Now, say I, saying I'd play Baron Park, you know, that that would be very circumstantial as well if, if, if it was just completely up to me and there was people that had played it before and knew how to play it, then it would be Baron Park. But if it was with new players that hadn't played either game, it would definitely be New York Zoo. Oh, why is that? Because it's... Just because it's so much easier to teach. It's, you know, you're moving the piece one to four spaces and either you're putting a, a, a puzzle piece on your board or you're putting animals in your park. Huh. You know what I mean? It's a lot easier to teach, a lot easier to get going, a lot less, you know, fiddly bits. When I think of Baron Park, difficult to teach does not spring to mind. Well, comparatively, right? Because there's, you know, there's like getting your other map pieces and when the game ends and... There are expansions, and there's also achievements and a bunch of stuff on top of that. Fair enough, fair enough. Also with Mr. Beard, I played a game called Khmer. This was republished later by Pegasus Spiel called Elements. 
They attempted to put in some kind of art and maybe even possibly within striking distance of a theme. But the original version called Khmer for reasons passing understanding is a pure abstract card game. The deck consists of six copies of the number six, two fives, two fours, two threes, two twos, two ones. At the start of the game, four cards are removed from the game. You deal out the rest of the cards and the game begins. It's very simple. You either play a card to the middle, take the top card from the middle, remove a six from the game. Those are the only cards you can get rid of. Or knock. When you knock, what you are hoping is that you have a better score than your opponent while you're, the total score in your hand is equal to or lower than the sum total of cards that are on the table. So the value on the table goes up and down because another action you can do is take a card from the middle and put it in your hand. So you want a good card, good score in your hand that closely approximates the value on the table. The value on the table starts going up. It eventually eclipses that in your hand. You wonder whether you should knock or maybe take a card off from the middle, thereby perhaps bringing your score above what's on the table, but possibly also bringing it above what your opponent has. It is a lovely little dance. And I have to say, given the incredible simplicity of it, again, in the general design philosophy of a lot of card games coming out of Japan... It had lovely bits of, again, threatening, of bluffing, of trying to figure out what your opponent is, has in their hand, both by virtue of what you've seen in the hand and their actions. It is a splendid game. I'm definitely going to try to play it again, given how easy it is to substitute in the cards for the deck, even if I have difficulty finding a copy, which I will absolutely try to do. I'm certain that I'll be able to get another play in soon. Just for two players, incredibly simple rules explanation. I've more or less explained to you how the game works. And I'm looking forward to trying it again. This is Khmer, also known by its version published by Pegasus, Elements. Finally, for me, got to play another game of Priests of Ra. I don't know that I've talked about Priests of Ra before on the podcast. Priests of Ra was sort of a variant of Ra that was published in 2009. Raw being the single greatest auction game ever made. That is, of course, unless you count all games being fundamentally auction games, a position to which I have some sympathy but will not necessarily commit myself to at this time. Priests of Raw differs from Raw primarily in that some of the tiles are double-sided, and as you place them in the auction track, you get to decide what side they're on. There are also the eponymous priests, which allow you to flip tiles as you win them, and there's also some minor scoring differences. Ultimately, while I appreciate this extra level of control, normally when you're adding a tile to the track in Raw, you have zero control. It's either a Raw tile, in which case you're forced to call an auction, or it just goes on the auction track. There's no choice involved. Here, you sometimes have a bit of an interesting choice about, well, if this tile ends up being blue, it will benefit my two opponents. If it's yellow, it'll really make it useless for me, but it won't help my opponents either, and so you try to figure out which way you'd like the tiles to go. But ultimately, what makes me prefer vanilla Raw is that the disasters or the calamities are more interesting. In Raw, there are calamities that are keyed to each tile type. There's the one that nukes monuments. There's the one that nukes civilizations. There's the one that nukes pharaohs. In Priests of Ra, there's just a, a generic disaster tile that gives you negative points in a triangular configuration. And... That ends up being less interesting to me because one of the beauties of Raw is how a different lot can be made better or worse for different players with the addition or removal of a single tile. And with the generic calamities, I don't feel that same level of differentiation, and so the economy ends up being a little bit more one note. Now, it's still a brilliant game. I would happily play Priests of Raw any day of the week, and I absolutely think that you should give it a try if that's the only avail version of Raw that you have available. And as a variant, I think it's fascinating. I love playing variants of some of my favorite games when they're by the same designers. But ultimately, I think the original is probably for the best, although I did very much appreciate being able to go back to, to this alternate version. That's Priests of Raw, designed by Reiner Knizia, and it was published by Rio Grande in English in 2009. And those are the games we played this week. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SoWrongGames at Manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great. But having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything from T-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets, and of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days. Like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection, or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code staple two zero. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, on to the news, and why it doesn't matter. So Corvus Belly, the publishers of Infinity, my favorite tabletop miniatures game, are going to be making a fantasy game called Warcrow. And so far, the only information available about it is that it sounds very generic. It is a dark fantasy game. There are elves and dwarves and humans and stuff, and I'm like, oh, jeez. Then again, I have to say that on paper, the universe of Infinity didn't necessarily strike me as being particularly compelling either. It was largely the way that it was fleshed out, the particular uh, attention to cosmopolitanism, the particular attention to representing non-white people in a vision of the future, cough, GW, cough, that really made me appreciate the universe of Infinity. So maybe Warcrow will end up being interesting. Who knows? I haven't really been a miniature gamer for the past year or so because I've been on the road and miniatures gaming is not the kind of thing you can really do while traveling at all. But I am cautiously optimistic. Corvus Belly is an interesting company and I think their Infinity rule set is one of the best tabletop miniatures rule sets in the industry. So it's not just a quality universe, but a quality rule set. Who knows what they're going to do with Warcrow? More to follow. Mark, I never got to play Mombasa, but it's been reprinted and rebranded as Sky Mines. So those who never had a chance to pick up Mombasa or thought it was problematic, now is your chance. It is now rethemed. Yes, instead of a problematic whitewashing of awful colonial ills, now you get to go all in on cryptocurrency and NFTs. <laughs> I have to hope that this is partially satirical. I don't know. We can only hope. I have a couple of shameful admissions, Walker. Do you want the shameful admission that you're probably going to join me in or the shameful admission that you have no interest in first? Well, let's give us no, no, the no interest and then we'll walk out together. New Cosmic Encounter expansion has been announced, Walker. It is called Cosmic Odyssey. It is going to have a bunch of new aliens. It's going to have some variant aliens for the ones that are regarded as either too weak or too strong, which, I mean, it's only taken them six or seven go-rounds to finally acknowledge that maybe they need to errata some of them. Balance has never been Cosmic Encounter's strong suit, so that's kind of okay. And, of course, because it is 2022 and it is international, federal, and local law, there is now going to be a campaign mode. Yay. Because I can definitely tell you that one of my big problems when playing Cosmic Encounter is, but I have this stable group that wants to play Cosmic Encounter all the time. Can I liven it up in a campaign mode? Says the man who hasn't played Cosmic Encounter in, I think, about five years. Anyway. I am happy when Fantasy Flight does anything that is not attached to Cthulhu or superheroes, so... 
Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, we get the same group of six people together all the time. So we need to get a game that we can play over and over again. Do you often get the same people to your gaming group? No. No, you do not. <laughs> and I, good luck trying to find six people that actually enjoy playing Cosmic Encounter. I know. It's the story of my life. You don't have to play with six. It's fine with four or five, Walker. In fact, a lot of people prefer it with less than six. It's one of the great controversies in the Cosmic Encounter world. Lastly, for me is the segment I like to call Who Asked for This? And I have two <laughs> it's back. things to be brought into this category. It's Fantasy Realm Marvel Edition. Oh, Hooray, dear Lord. Because everything has to have a Marvel Edition. <laughs> and Mark, I'm sure when you think of what game do I want to be deluxified, because I know the word deluxified goes through your head you don't so get many say, times. You don't get to say that word anymore. Keep that and name you out of your mouth. Castles of Burgundy. You don't. You. I know you think Castle Bur- of Castles of Burgundy is too short, but <laughs> it it is a great game, and I'm so glad it's getting a deluxified version because that's what the world needs. This is Awakened Realms, right? They are playing a part of it. Yes. I I did not think that Awakened Realms and Stefan Feld formed a natural alliance, but as you might imagine, from such an unholy union. What you're going to have is this bizarre Feldian monstrosity with miniatures for no earthly reason. Just just one miniature, apparently. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Who knows what stretch goals we'll achieve. I Honestly, I'm always looking out for a new visual indicator of all that is wrong with our hobby. The new edition of Castles of Burgundy might well be it. But on that topic, <laughs> Mythic Games! <laughs> This is the uh, deeply shameful admission that you might have some interest in. So Paolo Parente, famed artist, has a universe called Anastir, and Mythic Games is going to be making Anastir the board game. And I was completely uninterested, and my eyes were glazing over, until I saw that their primary inspiration was side-scrolling beat-em-ups, specifically Golden Axe. And I have been looking for a good board game adaptation of a side-scrolling beat-em-up. Now, Street Masters is brilliant. We love Street Masters, even though we're not so keen on blacklist games anymore for a variety of business reasons, but it doesn't really feel a whole heck of a lot like a side-scrolling beat-em-up, especially because there's no scrolling at all. It's just an arena where you're fighting off waves of goons. That's fine. Whatever. But this actually, what sold me on Anastir was you're actually going to be removing boards as you progress along a path. So, whatever. Nice. Golden Axe is one of my all-time favorite games. If you haven't played it, I'm sure there are uh, any number of redos available. Don't play any of the sequels. Friends, don't let friends play Golden Axe sequels. I played it a lot in the arcades back when it first came out. Played it on the uh, Genesis. Played it on the Master System even, although I don't recommend that either. I love me some Golden Axe. So Anister has to be good. That's how it works, right? It's going to be launching on Kickstarter it, on April 19th. It's got to be the greatest game of all time. Yeah, no, it has to be just as good it, as the source material. Absolutely. Especially since it's not even licensed. Innovative. Groundbreaking. New concepts. Groundbreaking. It's Re- going to be great. Revolutionary. I'm sure it's going to have a campaign yeah. mode. I'm sh- it's going to have a solo version. It's currently slated to be co-op, but I'm sure they're going to introduce a versus mode because, you know, why not? Yeah. I'm already playtesting the roll and write version that they, they put out. It's going to be it great. And being Mythic Games, I'm sure there will be zero errata at any point. Finally, there is going to be a reprint of Through the Desert, the seminal Reiner Knizia tiling game. It is going to be a 25th anniversary edition from Steeped Games. There is some word on the internet about there being additional modules that are going to be allowed. I'm not sure that Through the Desert needs modules. It's simplicity and the fact that it's pared down is one of its great appeals. There's also some talk, and again, I'm going to be somewhat contradictory here, of their replacing the camels with wooden camels. Why would you do this? The pastel camels in Through the Desert are one of the main appeals. If they don't look like flavors of sweet tarts plus detergent... Everyone wants to know, what do you call that color? It's detergent flavor. Everyone knows this. The green color is lime, but the sort of off-teal color, that's detergent flavor. Why would you get rid of this? And thanks to the multilingual 2005 Through the Desert Edition, I now know how to say pastel camel in like eight different languages. So I think it would be incredibly disrespectful to the legacy of Through the Desert to even consider replacing the pastel camels with pastel wooden camels. Wouldn't be the same. One out of ten, literally unplayable. Agreed. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter, full of my own deep shame and grievances. Moving on to our feature game of the week. And our feature game is Agricola. Agricola is a worker placement game by Uwe Rosenberg, first published by Lookout Games in 2007, recently re-released in a revised edition in 2016. 
Uwe Rosenberg is a very famous designer with a deep, deep back catalog. He first came onto the scene with Bonanza, the trading card game where you cannot rearrange the cards in your hand. But ever since Agricola, he has been more or less synonymous with, shall we say, vaguely agrarian worker placement games. Whether it's Agricola, Caverna, Reichelt, whether it is glass blowers, whether it is Feast for Odin. He has gone back to this well again and again, and he's also done the same thing with polyominoes, starting with Patchwork. New York Zoo was mentioned in this episode. A number of his worker placement games, such as, for example, Feast for Odin, as well as other things like Indian Summer, etc., etc., etc. The man likes to plumb the depth of certain ideas. And Agricola was the first time he really got into animal breeding and worker placement, something that he has gone back to again and again and again. And I, for one, am thankful. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Agricola? So the first thing you try to do is not let your family die of starvation. And when you achieve that, you can make it unfun again by watching them freeze to death. <laughs> and when that becomes too easy, enter the competitive scene, and I'm sure that's where the real fun will begin. Agricola is a worker placement game where there is real blocking with new action spaces opening up every round, of which there are 14. Rest assured that these new spaces are essential to improving your game state. So the first thing you do before you even start is you choose which of the 32 expansions you're going to play with. <laughs> and then you get an array of cards. And it's like advance flux. And now that hurts my mouth to even say that. It, it's that I thought it was a joke, but then when it came out in real life, it's painful. So you... You plan your advanced flux, flux cards because they're rule-breaking. And you better choose wisely because if you don't, no, ooh, you fail, you're lost. Agricola. <laughs> so the cards are very controversial. I have no doubt that we will be returning back to it. i just like to stress to a certain extent that one of the reasons why Agricola was both revolutionary at the time and ahead of its time, and to a certain extent timeless, although again, it's only been 15 years. I, I, I'm loath to call that timeless. 15 years isn't all that long, even in the space of a board game hobby. It was, a, it was very much ahead of its time. Because Euros, at the time of 2007... Number one, didn't frequently punish you. They didn't seek to give obstacles to you and punch you in the face too much, the way Agricola absolutely does. It's one of the reasons why it was one of the early games to have a solo mode, because there's a built-in challenge from just having to keep your family fed. And number two, the wealth of special powers and game-breaking exceptions. It's certainly not Cosmic Encounter, but it is certainly closer to Cosmic Encounter than almost all other Euros were at the time. Now, of course, it's not uncommon to have to feed your, feed your family, pay for your workers, pay upkeep or whatever, struggle to pay back loans, what have you, as well as player asymmetry being so standard in a lot of Euros that you see even games like Teotihuacan have asymmetric player, uh, player powers, where I dare say pre-Agricola that never ever would have happened. Agreed. It's one of those games that have has its own content. There's ones like Blood in the Clock Tower has its own stuff. Twilight Imperium 4th Edition has their own thing. There's actual channels dedicated to just that one game. There's content creation just for a particular game as opposed to like an array of board games. So, uh, And and the, the tournament scene is huge for Agricola. Yes. When you commented on and then you enter the competitive scene, I'd just like to stress, I know nothing about high-level competitive play for any game I've ever played, with the possible exception of Infinity, which I mentioned before as a miniatures game. I do not like it, competitive scenes. It, it's a great way to kill my enjoyment of a game, for what it's worth. Yeah, I did want to put that caveat at the beginning of this as well, too. This is for people who don't play a lot of Agricola, people who, you know, are we're not going to come up with any revolutionary <laughs> yeah. uh, strats for you in, in, in this particular review. Well, there are a couple of shorthands, though, that I have learned in terms of just trying to benefit my own situation. And this, I think, is revealing as to the some of the core design elements of Agricola. One of them is, to read for a worker ain't all that bad. Like... <laughs> Which is just an indication of how tight the resources are. I've said before, Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games can be put on a spectrum based on how tight they are and how loose they are. And broadly speaking, I like the tightness of Agricola. How, especially the early rounds, you're so desperate for fundamental resources, you're doing all these actions that I think induce a pleasant degree of deliberative angst. Like, yeah, this really isn't worth it from some abstract sense of worth it, but it's what I need to do right now, so I guess this is what's happening. Yeah, like I said, the worker placement blocking is real. 
you want to get all these different occupations out. You want to get all these minor improvements out, but so does everyone else. And there's only one spot to do that. So it's this constant fight to get out those spots. And then a new action spot shows up every round, like I said, and those spots are essential too. They bring in the animals. You have to have them or you're going to get negative points. It's the getting more children, more workers. It's there's, we've talked about so many worker placements where there's spots that aren't used for the whole game. There are no spots like that in Agricola. I agree. I agree. And even the spots that aren't that popular, spots that build up, right? They get more and more wood or more and more clay. So eventually they become highly sought after. Although like the wood is sought after right at the beginning, then it come, becomes a little less so, but it starts building up where you just cannot, you know, let it go by again. I think it's telling, and this is a good sort of microcosm for what makes Agricola so compelling, or rather a testament to the fact that it is so compelling. So many worker placement games, so many auction games, so many Euro games generally, you know, they figure, well, there need to be building resources that enter the system. And so often it's boring. So often it's dull. I mean, think about After the Empire. Think about uh, Architect of the West Kingdom. Think about all these other areas where we complain. It's like, yes, it's another worker placement game where you go, you get the resources, then you put your worker out, and then you use the resources. You wash, you rinse, you repeat. On a very abstract level, you could try to pair Agricola down to that same cycle, go and get the resources, go and use the resources. But the fact that the resources accumulate from round to round, and you're simultaneously so desperate to worry about what everyone else is doing and to feed your own family, that the tension of, do I get that six wood now or do I hope that there's going to be nine wood for me next round becomes so incredibly delicious and one of the main reasons why I keep going back to Agricola year after year after year when other worker placement games bore me to tears yeah and some of the paces some of the spaces combo up too it says you know soul your field fields and get a minor improvement so if you can time it just right where you have enough resources to do both of those things so useful and I think the fact that it introduces new worker spaces as the game goes on simultaneously ups the tension and ups the ante and the stakes of what's going on while making the game more approachable than it might be otherwise, rather than the grid of A Feast for Odin. I love A Feast for Odin, but I definitely prefer Agricola. And one of the reasons why is you're not presented with this massive spreadsheet at the beginning of the game of 84 action spaces. It makes the game super brutal to teach. It also makes the game super brutal to come back to. I'm happy to do it, and I'm willing to do it, but I'd much rather have a curricula where I'm just slowly eased into the game, and then just the, the elements get added in at a slow and, but I think, appropriate pace. And random as well, because it'll ch- make every game different, because the, they those actions, they're sort of blocked off into sections, like, three, four, five, six, but within those sections, those actions will come up randomly. So that's interesting as well. I do want to go back to the cards because we didn't really explain how they worked. You have seven occupations and you have seven minor improvements and there's all sorts of different variants and different ways people go about uh, attaining these cards, but you get them at the beginning of the game and you can either draft them or draw 10, pick seven, all sorts of different ways. But at the end of the day, Seven occupations, seven minor improvements, and like I said, they are just game-breaking cards. The occupations will usually make certain actions more useful, and the improvements pretty well do the same thing, but they sort of trigger, they usually uh, require resources to build, whereas the occupations are only going to cost you food. Yes, the cards remain very, very controversial. There's a lot of people who very much like Euro games, very much like worker placement games, but find the card element unbalancing. I mean, again, I I kind of drew the intellectual design thread from Cosmic Encounter all the way to Agricola. And to a certain extent, that's forced. I'm not saying that they're similar games. But there's a lot of people who do not like that level of let's face it, randomness in terms of the initial draw of cards. That's one of the reasons why the drafting variant is very popular. I find it a little too time-consuming, generally speaking, unless everyone really knows what they're doing. Uh, for what it's worth, for people who've, who are familiar with games, I prefer the draw 10, keep 7 rule. It gives you a little bit of control, but doesn't bog things down too, too much. But a lot of people just refuse to play Agricola at all and would much rather play Le Havre or would even rather do things like play A Feast for Odin, but get rid of their cards because... A Feast for Odin also has random occupation cards, but they play much, much, much less central role than those starting 14 cards in Agricola. I, for one, love it, if, if for no other reason than the framing of the game, which I'll get back to later. I love it because not only does it give you huge variance every game, 
because there are so many different decks now that you can choose from and you can, you know, pick your array from A to G, whichever ones you want to play with. But back to what you're saying, not only is it, is it random, but it really front loads the game, right? If you have any knowledge of the game whatsoever, you're going to make way better choices on what cards to keep than someone who is new to the game. I'll, I'll grant you that the front loading is not ideal. However, I will say this. It is apparent even for new players that the rate at which these cards are going to enter the system is going to be very, very, very slow. You're not going to be able to play them all out, certainly not in the first few rounds. And so the front loading, this is one of those games where you really notice which people are willing to engage in sort of blinkered heuristics. I don't look at the seven cards, or at least when I play successfully, or at least when I play more pleasant games for me of Agricola. I don't look at my 14 cards and say, in what order shall I play these 14 cards? I look at them and say, what's the first one I want out? And that's that's a much easier question to answer. And once I resolve that, I then start saying, do I want the second one? Do I want it sooner or later? And on, on that basis, I'm able to parse it. But a lot of other people need some of those other people that don't enjoy Agricola and would rather go to the cardless versions of similar games. They don't really enjoy an, uh, uh, that kind of analysis of game state. And I, I'm perfectly sympathetic. The other thing I like about Agricola over like a Feast for Odin is in Feast for Odin, a lot of the times you get into a loop where you sort of start cycling the same actions over and over again. That is not the case in Agricola. You really want to do everything because everything at the end of the game, everything goes down to the score sheet and what you didn't do is negative points. So you want fields, you want one of each animal, you want every space that's there and it's really goes down to action efficiency. It's do you, you need to get those plant, those vegetables in the ground. So they're giving you food. So you need to get them in early. So you need to plow the fields. You need to get the stables, which need the wood. So there's the, all of these things you have to set up for, but you only get two actions a turn until you get more family, which requires more food. It's, it's such a great balance of things you need to do. I agree. But at the same time, the scoring conditions are one of the things that I like least about Agricola. For one thing, the overarching emphasis on getting more workers. A lot of early worker placement game ha had these problems where if you could get more workers, you had to go get more workers. For example, there's tremendous controversy, but a lot of people will assert that one of the dominant ways to play Stone Age, a, a contemporary of Agricola followed by a couple of years, was you had to go and get more workers as fast as possible. A lot of other worker placement games fall into this. Agricola really leans into the need for getting more workers. Yes, you've got to feed them, but not only do they give you more actions, there were three points each at the end of the game, which is huge. It is not conceivable in my experience, although again, I'm not a super competitive at Agricola, for somebody to be competitive with two workers against other players that have four and five. And that, I feel, as well as the emphasis to do a little bit of everything, I find leads to a little bit of sameness in terms of end game states. I'm going to walk that back a little bit later when I talk about the framing, because I really think the framing is super important. But it leads to a kind of, it's kind of a catch-22 when you have Euros with these sort of variegated scoring conditions. You're going to end up with sameness either way. Either you have something like Agricola where you just need to do a little bit of everything, and so there's a kind of sameness there. Or it's a game like uh, many games by Vladimir Suki, or indeed a little bit like some of Uwe Rosenberg's other stuff, like... Uh, like Le Havre, or like A Feast for Odin, where there's a billion different ways to score points, but you can only focus on a couple, and so you just blinker off and ignore vast swaths of the game. And both of those have their own sense of prob uh, set sets of problems. It's one of the reasons why, all things being equal, I prefer a game to be more like Barrage and a little bit more focused in its scoring. That being said, even though the end of the game scoring is rough, the end of the game board state is amazing. Like we've talked about, you have your own little farm. You've got your fields where you've planted your vegetables and your wheat, and you've got your little fenced off areas where you have your sheep and cows and pigs, and you have all your little inhabitants, and you've got something created at the end of the game that you did and is different than everyone else's board. I agree 100%. This is what I've been talking about when I said that I think that Agricola is a, tri a triumph of framing. This isn't about, you, you don't pay for your workers. You are feeding your family. It's a subtle difference, but it means a lot. You're not hiring outside help. 
you're training your family to do these new occupations. These new improvements aren't like, you're not building a university out in some colonized area. You're building a new mud hut that you're going to stick your family's sheep into, right? The sense of scope, the sense of, of, of locality, the fact that everything is small scale and tailored to the brutal conditions of medieval farming, not in a simulationist sense, in a very abstract and generalized sense, but the fact that it's small in scope and you have this unparalleled sense of ownership really, I think, sells the game of Agricola for me. Because no matter what I do, whether I do well or whether I do poorly, I remember the struggle, both that imposed by other players, because as we've said, there's more player interaction than your typical worker placement Euro, and from the necessity of feeding everybody. And of course, if you play with one of the expansions, you have to heat them as well. I then get to look at my board. I get to remember the time that Grandpa learned how to become a sheep herder. I get to remember the time I spend all that money to put out that clay pit and... It really is satisfying. And you get to point at the other people's board and say, ha, your people live in dirt huts and my people live in stone <laughs> houses. More frequently, I like looking at them and marveling at how they have more fields than I do or looking at their incredible flock of uh, flock of cows? Herd of cows. Herd. Murder of cows? I've heard of cows. I heard they have milk. I've heard of them. Uh, that was painful, Walker. <laughs> Removing that. <laughs> no, no, no. Just... I, so ultimately, despite the fact that I feel that the game ends in a little bit of a spreadsheety element from this scoring element that I'm not a huge, huge fan of, I do at least have this lovely visual artifact, and I do get to look at everyone else's lovely visual artifact. It's not hugely different in my experience from game to game, again, by virtue of the scoring conditions needing you to do a little bit of everything, but it's still mine, and the lovely components, no matter what edition you're playing with, you're always, at the very least, even if you have the original version with wooden cubes instead of wooden animals, you still get to build your little pastures with wooden fences. You still get to have your little house tiles, and you still get to have your little family members living in them, whether they're or little meeples, it doesn't matter. You still get a lovely visual confirmation record of what happened. And I think this this really re-emphasizes the framing and the theming and brings it all home together. And that's one of the reasons why I've kept going back to Agricola over and over and over again over the course of these past 15 years. Agreed. And I like the one thing that we didn't talk about are the major improvements and how it's sort of like the sort of the one anchor that is the same in every game. It's a set of cards that will that does not change, or I shouldn't say that because maybe the expansions they change. Maybe is there a heating one, or yes. maybe yeah, there are additional the, ones in in Farmers of the Moor. <clears throat> yeah, but most most of the generalized games, the major improvements are the same. It's an array of wishing wells and different kinds of stoves that are going to allow you to cook food, and it's the same pool for everyone. So it's sort of like that anchor that everyone has to draw from. That will be the same in most games. Well, one of the challenges you have to deal with is how are you going to keep your family fed. And that is why the major improvements in Agricola do serve, and I, I like the term used as that anchor. There are enough fireplaces, there are enough stoves around, so that when harvest time comes and you desperately need to feed your family, you can look at that pile of sheep that's been accumulating on that action space and figure, hmm, I hope my kids like mutton because that's all they're going to be eating all year. <laughs> without that, without that, common element of cards, you could end up in situations where people would fundamentally not be able to feed their family if they didn't draw enough minor improvements and occupations that help them with food production. And so there is that balance. There is that predictable element on top of the randomness. We should mention that there is a major expansion called Farmers of the Moor, which introduces horses and heating. Some people swear by it. It's not necessarily my preferred way to play. I, I'm happy to play it, but I prefer the base game. Largely because, again, as we've said, we're not super competitive players. We are noobs. No matter how many times we play, we still remain noobs. It is, it's more of a state of mind than a number of plays thing. Exactly. As well as a plethora of additional decks. Now, this is one of actually one of the changes between the original version of Agricola and the revised version. One of the downfalls of the revised version is that out of the box, there aren't very many cards available, but they've been very quick at republishing and rebalancing a lot of the cards that were available in the original version. So you've got the A, B, C, and D decks, as well as other sundry decks for more cards. Those are, you know, get as many or as few as you like. If you've seen the same cards over and over, maybe consider getting another expansion. If not, have however many cards you think you need. That being said, it's also in Board Game Arena. The implementation is very well done. It already has up to D deck. C and D are a bit buggy, it, it claims, but we I've played 
quite a few games, including them, and have had no problem so far. Everything seems to work great. Played like eight games this week. I'm liking it more and more. I still think I enjoy Caverna a bit better. You feel as though you have a little bit more done at the end of the game. And the scoring seems to make a little bit more sense. And there's a little more whimsical and adventure and excitement in Caverna. You absolutely get more done (coughs) in a game of Caverna. That is unambiguously true. You know, rubies start falling from the sky. Feeding your family isn't nearly as difficult. And adventures give you any number of flexible resources. And so at the end of the day, there's a lot of ways to get things done. Same thing with A Feast for Odin. It's just, you don't feel the pressure as much. Maybe you spend a fifth of your time vaguely concerned about how you're going to feed people. It's not a huge, huge deal. But again, because of the framing, because of the sense of narrative, because of the sense of pressure and the groundedness, I do prefer Agricola. I feel it increases the player interaction. It increases the tension. It increases my sense of meaningfulness of the decisions that I'm making. And that is why it's my preferred worker placement of the Uwe Rosenberg games. Although, I, for what it's worth, my all-time favorite worker placement game is still Tribune. But I absolutely love the, t- the increased tightness and tension, although I can completely respect the fact that you prefer th- that Caverna is a little more flexible and loose. And we should give credit where credit is due. The e- implementation of Agricola on Board Game Arena was done by a couple of French developers named Tizac and Vincent T. So thank you very much for your work. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. At sowronggames.com, you can find all manner of additional information like the Swag Extended Universe or Swagoo, as well as the Swag Canon, as well as where to find Swag Merch. All the relevant Swag stuff can be found at sowronggames.com. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.